0: Uh, if you're new here, welcome. We've been in First Timothy actually for a while now. Uh, if you're new here with us, you're jumping in just kind of at the end, but that's okay. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 5, and um, I'd invite you to turn there if you have a Bible. Uh, if you don't, that's fine. We're going to have the uh, verses up on the screen, or uh, there are Bibles on the tables as you come in. You're always welcome to grab one of those if you, wanna, if you forgot yours at home or just want to grab one. Um, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer, and then we will uh, begin by reading the text and, uh, and digging into it. So please uh, join me. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time. Uh, thank you, Lord, that uh, we can uh, gather here as, as friends and family, and, and Lord, that we can turn our attention uh, to the Bible. Lord, you, you give it, you've given it to us for our growth, for our encouragement, and also for instructions in terms of how the church should function. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, as, we, as we turn our attention to this part of 1 Timothy, where there are lots of instructions for us as a church and for leadership, I pray, Lord, it would shape us, I pray God that it would help us to uh, to set our expectations for what the church should be like, and Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us an ear to hear what is for us personally as well. So I pray these things in Jesus' name, uh, Amen. Uh, well, this this passage is uh, all about leadership, and uh, the the book of 1 Timothy, if you think about it, is really a lot about leadership. Uh, we've we've had all through the chapters Paul talking about focusing on aspects of good leadership and bad leadership. Uh, the main section was 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he went through the, sort of the uh, requirements, the qualifications for elders. And so now he kind of builds on that, and he's going he's gonna to give us some very clear, very pointed instructions about what to do if the leaders of the church, the elders of the church, are doing a good job, and what to do if they are doing a bad job. So we have three points uh, to work our way through this text. Um, they are honoring elders, uh, disciplining elders and then choosing elders. So we're going to work our way through a little bit at a time. We're going to begin in verse 17 uh, with honoring elders. So I'll just read uh, the first couple of verses here. Paul begins. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So we'll stop there, just two uh, verses, and I want to make sure we know what we're talking about here. When he says elders, he's talking about those who lead the local church. Uh, Over the centuries, there's been lots of different uh, words used for this position, right? There's uh, pastor, elder, um, there's bishop, there's priest, uh, there's father, there's, depending on your denomination, a lot of words that could describe this one office, and um, the truth is that we see that in scripture as well that there's a few different words used to describe this one position. Uh, I want to jump to 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Peter here uh, is speaking about this one office, but uses three different words. So he says this, I exhort the elders, in the Greek, that word is presbyteros, among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd... That means, uh, in Greek, poimenate, sometimes that's translated pastor. Shepherd or pastor, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That uh, Greek word is episkopos. So, uh, various points in the Bible, they talk about this one office as a shepherd, as overseer, as elder. But it's really talking about the, the one position. And so that's why, uh, here at Tri-City, we, we try to honor that and follow that. And to have pastor-elder, we see that as a kind of one a position. The position of the, the one who rules or at times teaches and preaches. So the main question that Paul has uh, about this office is, what do you do when things are going well? And what do you do when things are not going well at all? So verse 17 shows us what to do when things are going well. Uh, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double, double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. Uh, so what does double honour mean? Uh, as much as I, was, I would like it to mean double pay, it does not mean double pay. Uh, it, it really is talking about two aspects of the way that we would honour those in leadership, those who are doing a good job. Now money is part of it. There's financial compensation, which is part of it, but then also respect. So let's look first at the financial compensation. Uh, that really is the, the only way to understand these, uh, this passage and what he's teaching. And we know this because of the verses he quotes. He quotes that one about muzzling an ox when it uh, treads out the grain. Uh, he goes into more detail in another letter to first, uh, to, in 1 Corinthians. So we're going to look there, and you can see the, the principle that he's trying to explain. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 7, Paul says, uh, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, "You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain." Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does He not certainly speak for our, for our sake? So there you see the principle, which begins all the way back in the law of Moses so in the Old Testament. Basically saying that, the, that when you work, when you're doing a certain work, you should expect to be cared for because of that work, by that work. So a soldier, this happens to true for a soldier, for a shepherd, uh, for farmers, even for an oxen, and also for pastors and elders. They, they should expect to receive a wage based on the work that they do. Uh, That's very clear. In the second verse he quotes, the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, That's actually a quotation from Jesus uh, in Luke chapter 10. So the principle there that applied to the church is that the elder or pastor uh, who serves the church full-time deserves to be paid for their work. And I think we can uh, extend that to the other staff of the church. There are other people on staff here at Tri-City, work part-time, full-time, and they deserve to be paid for the work that they do. Now, there are churches uh, that do it differently, right, where this doesn't happen. Uh, I was at a, a pastor's training day a couple weeks ago, and there was someone speaking there who's from a church in Texas, and uh, he was telling us he planted this church in Texas about 10 years ago, and at the beginning, uh, he, he was not, they could not support his salary fully, so he also taught at a college nearby, a bivocational ministry. There are times when that's necessary, There are other times where the church just isn't big enough to support like a paid staff. And there's some times where the church decides that uh, they won't have a paid staff. That the kind of lay elders, the non-staff leaders in the church will just share the load of preaching and teaching. Uh, Paul himself, at, at times, in the New Testament, writes to churches and says, you know, I didn't receive any financial compensation from you. I was a tent maker and I supported myself. So there are a number of different ways to do this. I think what we get here, though, is Paul saying this is the best practice for the church, right? The best thing for the church is for the pastor or elder working full-time to be supported by the church to free him up to do the work of ministry. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why this makes sense, Right? For one thing, you tend to get better sermons if the pastor has time to study, right? That's a good thing. Right? It takes a number of hours to get this ready, so it's better to have that person doing that to not have to juggle uh, the other job and, and that. Um, also, uh, being a pastor is really about people. And so having the time to meet with people is, is a good thing. It frees them up to not have to juggle, to be able to take whatever time is necessary to meet, and, and that also is a good thing. So we see uh, pretty clearly here that financial compensation is part of how uh, the elder pastor of the church is to be honored, but it's not the only thing. A fair wage is not the only way to be honored. There is also a sense of respect Uh, that is sort of clear just from the word honor, that they're they're to be honored. But we also see it elsewhere in scripture. Uh, Here's Hebrews 13, 17, where it says to the church, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over souls as those who will have to give an account. Uh, That's, I think, fairly obvious, right? That those who lead the church should expect to be respected and honored by those in the church. But it is important that we we make clear what kind of honor, what kind of of respect uh, we're talking about here. There's a right kind and a wrong kind. Uh, Let me give you an example of the wrong kind of honor. Uh, this, This example comes from hundreds of years ago. Uh, over Christmas, uh, my brother gave me a book. We, we always give each other books for Christmas. And the book he gave me was a book of historical fiction. Uh, it, it's called Wolf Hall by uh, Hilary Mantel. If you love good uh, historical fiction, it's a great book. It's mostly about Thomas Cromwell. So it's like in the 1500s. But one of the characters, a real guy in the book, is this guy, uh, Thomas Wolsey. Uh, he was a, a basically a priest in the Catholic Church in Britain at the time. Uh, so we had a very similar position to what Paul is writing about, right? He's a leader in the church, but he had a lot of, a lot of honor and a lot of respect that came from kind of uh, different sources. So for example, uh, he had many different titles uh, in his role as a church leader. Uh, he was a cardinal. He was the archbishop of York. He was the papal legate, which means he represented the pope there in England. In politics, he was the Lord High Chancellor of England. He also had enormous wealth. Uh, in reading about it, he had 600 people uh, on his staff that served him. Uh, He lived in a grand estate, right? Big house, filled with all sorts of nice things, jewelry, fine china, had all these ornate clothes that he would wear. He even had a coat of arms that was just for him and a banner that he would, whenever he would ride through town or be pulled in his carriage, the banner would go forth and people would say, there is Thomas Wolsey. A lot of respect, a lot of honor. But I would submit to you that This is honor and respect for things that God cares very little about, right? This is not the right kind of honor and respect that a a ministry leader should seek after. Now, these days, we don't have coat of arms. We don't have banners. As cool as they sound, we don't get one as a pastor, okay? It's a good thing. We are, though, tempted still, those of us in ministry, towards this kind of honor, pursuing this kind of respect. And there's a number of different ways that uh, we can be tempted in this way. For example, uh, academic degrees, can uh, fill us with pride, right? There can be those that pursue the, the doctor of theology or whatever it may be just because of the, the honor that will come with it. There's also still uh, titles, right? Holy Reverend, Most Holy Father, those kinds of things, which is this kind of honor. There are positions of influence where, where certain ministry leaders seek out uh, positions on charitable organizations, being on their boards, being in uh, positions of influence and power. And these days, uh, there are even things like book sales, and conference speaking tours that can uh, threaten to bestow the wrong kind of honor on a church leader. I think in the text here, what we see, if we look closely, is actually that the language is pulling us in the opposite direction of that kind of honor. Because what we see here is Paul connecting the honor of the elder with the work of being an elder. Right? That's what we see when he says the laborer deserves his wages. So the, the whole Emphasis here is that there is hard work that the pastor elder is doing and it's in that hard work that he should be honored. Um, the, the work of a pastor is, means being in the lives of the church at, at sometimes the most difficult times. In a sense, being in the trenches of life with those that they are ministering with and ministering to. Right? When marriages are struggling, when, when jobs are lost, when children are sick, when funerals are necessary that is the the job and joy of a pastor to be able to speak gospel truth into those desperate situations. That's that's why they're there. That's that's the calling of ministry, to make the gospel known, to to show that in all times of life, the best times, the most difficult times, that God has a word for us. It's it's in that hard work that the honor of an elder is found. It's, It's not because of the man himself or because of the title it's really because of the work that God is doing through him to serve the church. So, as a as a summary statement, elders, pastors should be honored with a fair wage and with the respect of the church for the work they do. And I would add on a personal note, I have received that from this church since we began. I'm thankful for the way this church has cared for me and my family. That's that's the way it should be. Now, While there are apparently elders that are deserving of double honor here in Ephesus, there are others that are deserving of no honor at all, right? We we turn the corner now to see not the honoring of elders, but the disciplining of elders. So for that, we're going to turn to uh, chapter, or sorry, verse 19. And we'll read that and then unpack it a bit. Verse 19 goes this way. Paul says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Oh, I went too far. So so we see there that the part, uh, really what he's talking about there, up to 21, is what to do, right, when there has been an accusation of wrongdoing. How do you assess it? How do you respond to it? And there's a a twofold emphasis again. Uh, He's saying that there should be protection, but also there should be discipline for those who lead the church. So um, verse 19 is the protection. Uh, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Uh, Since pastors are public figures, uh, they are vulnerable. We are vulnerable to slander and gossip and false accusations. Uh, In reading, do my reading for this week, I came across a story from Pastor Kent Hughes. And he tells a story of a time when there was a a woman in the church who struggled with mental health and began to tell people that um, he was going to leave his wife and marry her and leave the church. And she began to, to talk about this in the lobby to anyone who would hear. She began to drive by his house, kind of stalking him a bit. And there were some people in the church who began to be worried. They were were questioning. They began to to think that what she was saying was true, even though he had only met this woman one time in in the lobby. It was totally unfounded, totally untrue. But you can see the damage that can come when people uh, consider things as potentially true when it hasn't been vetted. Uh, There's a good reason why the scripture says here that there should be multiple witnesses when an accusation is made. Now, to be clear, uh, this doesn't mean that a church should wait Like if there's one person who makes an accusation of wrongdoing, it doesn't mean they should wait for someone else to be wronged, right? And then, okay, now we should do something. It's not that. What they're saying is that when there is an accusation, you should do the work of investigating to substantiate the claim, right? Find out if in fact there's other people who can corroborate uh, the story. So another example uh, of a pastor I I do know from a number of years ago, uh, he was accused of fraud by someone in, in his church. Uh, He had purchased a home from them, he and his family, they'd moved into the house and then the person had claimed that uh, he had used his influence to get a huge discount and and called it fraud. So uh, the response of the church was to assign a couple of elders to investigate the situation, to ask questions of everyone involved, look at the documents and come to uh, sort of a proclamation. Is this a valid, truthful claim or not? Uh, they, they came to the conclusion that it was not truthful. And in fact, in, in time, that person sort of recanted, apologized, said they were going through some things, they made it up. Uh, we know of these stories, perhaps, and we can see the value of this kind of due process. Right? Due process is always important, but especially in the church, especially when it comes to, to leaders. And it's also a reminder of the need for us to go through biblical processes when there is uh, a sense of offense, right? This is not just for elders, really. It's for all of us. When we are wronged, there is a process in Matthew 18 of how we are to deal with it, right? If we feel wronged, if we feel someone has sinned against us, we go to them directly. If they don't listen, we go back and we get someone else, some other trusted brother or sister in the church. Now two people are going to talk about it again. If there's no resolution, if that person has a hard heart or whatever the case may be, then you bring it to the leaders in the church. And at that point, you have two witnesses. You have You have two people who are able to speak into the situation. It's not just one person uh, speaking versus another. So there's wisdom here. And what we see is there's consistency between those within the church and the the leadership of the church itself. So protection is important for the uh, elders of a church, but also discipline is just as important. Uh, Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. So there's some important words here also that we need to understand, right? What does it mean to persist in sin? Uh, That phrase there is speaking about a severity of sin. So what's being explained here is not saying that in every instance of sin in an elder or pastor's life, they have to come before the church. If that were the case, we'd have to have a whole section of the Sunday morning gathering just talking, you know, for the leaders to confess sin. There's, of course, there's sin. Of course, there's confession of of sin. Um, What's being talked about here is a certain severity of sin, to persist in sin, remember the context. Someone has brought an allegation forward. Uh, the other elders have assessed it. Uh, in this case, they've said that it's truthful, right? That there's been a wrong committed, gone to the elder in question. Perhaps he has um, not been soft hearted about it, not confessed sin. So there's a persistence in that sin, or perhaps just the length of time of them persisting in sin. Either of those things communicate a sense of severity that it's serious, that it needs to be brought before the church. And that's the next thing you see. Uh, This rebuke is done in the presence of all. Uh, Most church discipline happens in private. It should. It's between some members of the church, whatever the case may be, elders speaking into that. It's behind closed doors. Uh, But with the elder, of course, their ministry is public, and so their discipline should be public as well. Uh, I've, I've seen this done on one occasion very clearly, Uh, This was when I was a new believer, uh, new to the church in my late teens. And uh, one Sunday morning, the senior pastor uh, came up on stage and brought with him uh, a man who was on staff. I I didn't know who he was. And this man proceeded to read a statement. This man was in ministry, uh, outreach ministry with the church, but working on the downtown east side. And he read a statement uh, confessing that he had been with prostitutes uh, in his time there. Uh, He read a statement confessing his sin, uh, apologizing to his family, apologizing to the church, and he was clearly broken about it, Uh, the senior pastor then spoke into it a bit and said, look, we're dealing with this as an eldership team. Uh, I would ask that you as a church don't talk about it, right? Trying to stop the gossip, but we we are dealing with it. I think that's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here, right? There's a public rebuke, and when it comes to, to elders, then there would be a removal from office. They would have proved themselves to be unqualified for ministry there. That It's necessary for the the church, the public, to see that for a number of different reasons. For one thing, it does help mitigate gossip. If people are wondering what's going on, they they hear it. They hear it from the leadership. They know what's going on. That's important for the church. But more important than that is the fact that it it helps the church to trust the leadership. It provides a sense of transparency and communicates a sense of integrity. It's it's tough to trust a leadership team when you don't actually know what's going on. When everything's done behind closed doors, when people are, are wronged or people just disappear from staff and you don't know what, what is going on, it's tough to trust the leadership. It's very important that these kind of things are done publicly. The other reason this helps is that uh, it, it hopefully will bring some measure of peace to someone who's been wronged. That the church is taking it seriously, that this person is confessing openly. It will hopefully... Um, move them down the road of healing. Uh, another big reason that this is helpful, and Paul points to it here in the text, is the effect that this kind of thing has on the other leaders of the church. So you see what he says, they are to rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And I would say uh, that, that um, instance I had, even though I was very young, even though I was very far uh, from any position of leadership, Uh, when I have stepped into ministry roles with some leadership, I have thought often about that Sunday morning. It it did instill in me a sense of fear. There's many times as I thought of it that I've been prompted to pray. I prayed, Lord God, please God, I pray that I would never have to make a speech like that. I pray God, you would keep me from my own sin. Lord, guard my heart. Help me to see sin clearly. Help me not to hurt my family, hurt the ministry of the church. See, the, the good thing about this kind of public rebuke is that it, it, it clarifies sin, right? When we're tempted towards sin, don't we, don't we have a, an unclear view of it, right? We tend to think that it's, it's not that big a deal. It's not gonna hurt anyone. No one's gonna find out. All of these lies that kind of fill our mind. But when you see that, right, it's like the light is shed on sin and we see it for what it truly is. It is a big deal. It does hurt people. It always does. It always leads us farther away from the Lord. It always hampers our, our ministry, our growth. Our, it, it, it ruins everything. It, it's good for us to see that, especially in leadership, especially for those that are in a ministry, a leadership position. What Paul is saying here is that for the church to be governed well, that the church itself needs to trust its leaders. And for their sake, they need to be uh, leaders of integrity. Now, the challenge, of course, with this is that it takes a lot of courage and commitment for an elder team to work this way. Uh, no one likes drama, right? No one likes conflict. No one likes all the turmoil that comes from this kind of thing. It's much easier just to sweep everything under the rug. And sadly, there are a long list of churches that have done just that. We, we know how the story goes, right? Allegations of sexual misconduct are brought forward, Uh, The church leadership listens and says, we're going to do something about it. They don't seem to do anything about it. The the pastor or the priest remains in their position and there's no resolution and the credibility of the church is totally ruined, right? There's no justice. There's no consistency there in, in that church. Is there any greater travesty than a pastor or church that has been commissioned in gospel ministry their whole job is to bring the, the good news of the gospel, to go to people and say, what you need to do is confess sin. You, you need to confess sin, trust in the saving work of Jesus on the cross and then experience forgiveness. How can, how can any church or any minister communicate that and yet, and yet not be confessing sin? And yet be, be covering it up. It completely undermines the work of the church and the ministry of the church. And we know sadly, of many examples of where this has been the case. The one that, that has been weighing on my heart recently is, is the near irreparable harm done uh, by the church to the First Nations communities of Canada uh, with the residential schools. You should know the story. You should know this part of our nation's history and the role of the church in it, the federal government and the church, establishing these schools in the 1880s all the way to the 1990s, taking thousands and thousands of children away from their family, putting them in schools where they were subject to all manner of abuse. If you, if you want to think about persistent sin, that's persistent sin. And yet the response in terms of acknowledging the sin, apologizing for the sin has, has been slow. Uh, the Anglican Church finally apologized in 1993. The Presbyterian Church in 1994. The United Church in 1998. And the Catholic Church has still not apologized for their role in this. And I point that out because we sometimes wonder, I've often wondered, why is it that the gospel has been hindered? Why is it that it's so difficult to make inroads into our First Nations community with with the message and hope of Christ? And and this is part of the reason. Because the credibility of the church has been undermined by the actions of the church itself. See, The principle is clear. And it applies to all of us. If we want credibility with those around us, We need to be living lives of integrity. We need to confess the sin that is in our lives. We need to be willing to have people examine our lives and and to admit wrong and to apologize. We need to live a life that says, Lord, my heart is open to you. I see that I need help. And I'm going to act in a way that is consistent with your word. A church can't just be committed to doing this. We need to be in the practice of doing this. Right? A leadership can't just say this is yeah we're going to take sin seriously, hold our leaders to account. We need to see evidence of it. Now I'd say on a practical note for us here at Tri City Church, young church, um, we are a ministry at this point of Northview Community Church, one of our ascending churches. And as a as a practical note, you should know that there are very clear protocols that Northview has in terms of uh, sexual misconduct allegations and how to how to follow up with that. Uh, we are planning as we move towards independence of adopting those same protocols, right? To to ensure that there is a clear line of response and uh, actually dealing with the issues that come forward. See, the seriousness of this topic cannot be overstated in our day. And if you actually look at the text, you'll see that the seriousness of this topic has always been emphasized as strongly as possible. Look at what Paul says in verse 21. Look at the appeal he makes. He says, in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. He's saying, Timothy, if you're gonna run your church well, you have to do things this way. To have credibility with the outside world, to have a, a sense of harmony and actually caring for people within the church, you, you have to do things the way God has outlined them. It's a very strong call, the strongest of calls. For the church back then and for us and for us today. That's our commitment that we would operate in the way that the scriptures instruct us. So, so the elders uh, must be protected from false accusations, but then also disciplined publicly when those accusations are true. The third section follow, flows naturally from these first two, because the third section is choosing elders. Right? Paul is kind of saying, look, since there's so much at stake, Since the fallout, the potential fallout is so great when things go wrong, uh, Timothy, you have to be careful about who you put into a leadership position. Now, before I read the next uh, chunk of scripture, there's four verses, we're going to play a game. The game is, uh, which of these verses is not like the other? Okay? (laughs) Uh, so if you know the text, you might know already, but uh, if, if you're uh, a Sesame Street watcher, when you were a kid, as I was, they had a game, and they would have a square, they'd divide it into four, there'd be four things, three of them would match, one of them would be the odd one out. So you'd have like uh, three tools, and then a watermelon, and you'd be like, a watermelon is different. So as you read through these verses, think of which one seems a little bit different, okay? So here we go. Uh, starting in verse 22, Paul says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others, keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Those are the four verses. Uh, Which one is the odd one out? The one about the wine, maybe? (laughs) Is it a little weird? In a text about, you know, elder misconduct, that he's encouraging this leader in the church, make sure you drink more wine. Okay, it's a little strange, um, but let's, let's understand it. You'll notice that um, if you, in the translation, most translations have this verse in parentheses. Uh, that's because it's, it's best understood as a personal aside from Paul to Timothy, which reminds us of what we're reading. We're not reading an essay on church leadership or a treatise on church government, we're reading an actual letter. An actual letter from an actual guy named Paul to another guy named Timothy. They knew each other really well. And we see here that they knew each other, I mean, really well. Because Paul says to Timothy, look, I know that you have digestion issues. Uh, The the prevailing wisdom of the time was that wine would help with that. And so he's saying to Timothy, "Uh, look, I know you want to be pure, right? That's his goal is to live a pure life. Uh, In fact, we see that in verse 22. Look just before, right? This is what sort of prompts him to say this. Verse 22, Paul says, don't take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And now he qualifies it. He's saying, look, Timothy, I know you want to be pure, but that doesn't mean you only drink water, right? You can drink a little bit of wine. You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about people, you know, judging you, thinking you're a, a drunkard. It's good for your stomach. I don't know if it actually is, but they thought it was have a little wine, so you, you can do that. And that is in keeping with the teaching on alcohol in the New Testament, right? This, the key word there is a little, a little wine, Timothy. We see that in the life of Jesus. He had a little wine socially when he was, he was drinking. He never indulged. The commands of scripture are very clear. We should not be drunk, right, with wine. And also that we should be aware of, of those who might be tempted to be drunk. And so we wanna be careful not to put our brothers or sisters in a social setting in a situation where they might indulge. So the, these parameters are sort of tie into what we see elsewhere in scripture. So we, we could, as a Christian, freely have a little bit of wine to help with our digestion. Or for some other reason, a little bit. But we should be careful not to indulge and not to tempt others to uh, do the same. Now, the way it fits in uh, to the bigger picture here is that this really is, these are four verses about discernment about being clear-headed when it comes to choosing leaders. And you see that in kind of the sandwich verses, right? So so the bigger idea here, what Paul is saying, is there is a a right process for discerning leaders in the church, and that involves uh, both time and scrutiny. You want to be clear-headed, see clearly who you're putting into a position of authority, and the only way that's possible is through time and scrutiny. So we see the time in verse 22. Uh, He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. That's what they would do when the existing leaders of a church would commission someone else for leadership. They'd lay their hands on them, pray for them. And uh, what Paul is saying is, look, Timothy, don't do that quickly. That should be something that happens slowly. Why? Because before you do that, you want to be sure about someone's character. And it's hard to be sure about someone's character if you've only known them for a short amount of time. You need some time to discern whether they are, in fact, godly, and mature, and all the things that, that you want, especially for eldership. This isn't just true for church, I mean, church leadership. In all areas of life, this is, this is an important principle. For example, dating and marriage. Right? This is a principle you should put into practice in your dating life as you're pursuing marriage. Uh, I had a friend once who was dating uh, a girl after three months, and then decided they, they were going to get married. And that... Uh, was a bit concerning for us, not because she wasn't a great girl. She was seemed great, loved the Lord. Uh, they seemed to get along great together. But my concern was, everyone looks great after three months, right? Most of us. Three months is easy, especially if you're in love. So she got the rose-colored glasses on. Everything they do seems cute and, and funny. But give it a year, right? You want There's value in waiting for the time when they aren't so cute anymore. They're kind of annoying, right? That. <laughs> That will give you a picture of the next 30, 40, 50 years of life. That's what this is about. You should make a decision for marriage in light of the the discernment that comes from having time with someone. It shouldn't be a rash or quick decision. The same is true for leadership in the church. Uh, Every now and again, someone will... Come up to me. Uh, maybe they're they're new to the church, and they'll say, uh, "We're really enjoying being here. I think uh, you know we're going to make Tri City our home." Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, I led a Bible study, led a community group in my other church. I'm wondering, is that a possibility here? And my response is always, "We're always looking for new leaders, but you should know it's it's probably going to take a little bit of time, um, because we don't want to rush into it, right?" So I would encourage you. I usually say, "Get into a community group." Uh, Give people a chance to get to know you and you know them. Uh, If this is something you're still interested in, we have an apprenticeship program uh, for community group leaders. It takes six months to a year. Uh, You get a chance to to meet with some of the leaders. You get a chance to lead in the group, read some books of theology and and a lot of questions. And we go through that because we want to prepare you well and we want to make sure we know you well before we put you in a position to, to lead. Now, sometimes people will say, that sounds great, uh, but actually I, was, I already did that at the other church, and so I'm ready to go. Just plug and play. Whatever you need, I can do it. And um, the, the thing is, that may totally be true. Very often it is, right? They're well-trained. They're ready to go. Um, they're a mature believer who's gonna lead well, but it could also be the case uh, that they are a divisive person, right? Who's gonna cause trouble in the church, and we just don't know it yet. Um, we're very good at kind of hiding those difficult parts of ourselves. And so what Paul is acknowledging here is is take your time. Get a chance to know people before you put them in a position of leadership, not just time, but also uh, scrutiny. Examining the individual. Uh, We see this in verses 24 and 25, because Paul says, um, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, even those that are not cannot remain hidden. He's saying there's some people who you, you just know right away that they got a lot of issues they got to work with, a lot of sin to overcome. But for many of us, it takes time for people to see those areas of sin in our lives. Uh, you know, pettiness, anger, pride. We, we can cover that up really well uh, in the lobby on a Sunday morning. It takes time for people to, to see us at, at our worst in a sense, but it's important to do that. Uh, on the flip side, there's some people who just exude the love of God. Just so gracious, so, so loving, and that's fantastic. But there's many others who are quieter that have the same level of love for the Lord, love for people. It just takes some time uh, for it to be, to be made known. So, so time and scrutiny, they are essential to rightly discern leaders, especially elders in the church. And, and most people, when I talked about that, most people totally get it. There's very few people who are offended by that. Most people recognize, of course. Of course, the the role of the leaders of the church is to guard the church and and to equip and train. So there's going to be a a process of varying lengths depending on the the role of leadership. So I'm going to pull out two points of application to kind of close off our time in light of what we heard, especially in light of this last uh, bit of instruction. Uh, The first point of application is for us personally and then for us uh, as a church. So personal point of application uh, I know we've been talking mostly about leadership because that's, that's what it's about. Um, but it does raise some questions, I think, for us personally, for everyone in the church. And the question I think it raises for us is, what kind of person are we if we are seen through the lens of time and scrutiny? If this is a good discernment process for any leadership positions, it is also just a good process for us in terms of examining our own heart. Right? Think of it this way. Uh, given enough time, what will be revealed in your life? Right? Uh, I don't mean sin, we all know we have sin, but are there, are there areas of our life, sort of vast expanses of our life, of our thought life, of our actions, that are completely closed off from everyone? Right, We're trying to hide, make sure no one knows about. Is that the kind of thing that in time will be, will be revealed? Or in time, will people come to see that that man, we're much more gracious and generous than they, than they really are? thought us to be. See, self-examination is a, a very fruitful uh, habit to be in. In fact, we see it again and again in Scripture, right? The Spirit of God is given to us to convict us of sin, which means that we're looking at our lives, speaking to others, feeling convicted, confessing sin. It's not, it's not just essential for leadership, it is, but for each one of us to truly grow in the way that God wants us to, uh, we should be thinking along these terms. So that's, that's the personal application. The uh, bigger picture application is, is in the life of our church. So uh, we are not an old church. We're a few years old. Uh, we are on the road to independence. And part of that process has been the process of discerning elders. Uh, as you uh, mentioned it a couple of times, uh, our goal is, is sort of into the spring to affirm our first elders of Tri-City Church. And then probably the next year uh, to be independent, separate from Northview Church. Uh, The leadership involved now, which is um, Jeff Bucknum, who's at uh, Northview, and Lee Francois from uh, Crossridge, and myself, the plant leadership team, are looking to transition onto a local elder team. We see that as scriptural, see that as as good for us as a church, and so you need to know a couple things. Number one, we've been very much trying to follow this pattern that we see here in scripture, meaning it has not been a quick process. Uh, Probably this time last year is when we began talking with uh, people, potential elder candidates. There's been a lot of meetings, a lot of studying of theology, studying of church governance, uh, a lot of uh, prayer together. And uh, the goal then is that the church would be a part of that as well. In due time, the elder candidates will be made known. There'll be a time for questions and prayer. And and really, uh, the goal is that we would enter into this uh, new season for us as a church with the confidence that we have followed the patterns of Scripture that we've heard from the voice of God and moving forward, uh, not quickly, not rashly, uh, but in a slow, deliberate, and a discerning way. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And I would ask, please, uh, we really would, I'd love you to pray, please, for that. If you're a regular member of the church, uh, I would ask that you pray for the existing leadership team, for those candidates as we're working through things, and just indeed that if there's anything that needs to be known, it would be made known and that we'd be able to respond well, and that uh, this would this would strengthen us as a church, that we would be a place where all of these things we're reading here would actually be put into practice, right? Leaders of the right kind, of the right character, responding in the right way for the sake of the mission of the church. So please join me as we pray and uh, we'll respond together. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the word. We thank you, Lord, that, uh, that so many times you're, you're so very practical so very uh, pointed in terms of your instruction for how we are to operate as a church. God, I pray that uh, you would guide us in that. I pray, Lord, for this, this road we are on towards independence, towards installing leadership. Lord, would you protect and guide us as a church? I pray, Lord, that, um, that we would not be quick to do anything in our own wisdom, but God, we would, um, we would do things in the way that you say is best. Uh, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, um, you would help us to discern our own hearts, Lord, as we, as we seek to install leadership, yes, but, but Lord, also just for our own lives. God, I pray that we would see this as uh, an encouragement, even a, a convicting word in terms, of, uh, in terms of the things that are true of us, uh, and yet we, we hide it so well. God, would you help us to have the courage to be vulnerable, uh, to be consistent and authentic and confess the sin in our lives. And I pray that through that, Lord, there would be greater credibility for the outside world, with those who come into the church, seeking to, to be transformed, seeking to meet Jesus. I pray they would, they would meet people who uh, have experienced that. Lord, that we aren't trying to pretend uh, we have everything together. We'd acknowledge, Lord, we need you desperately. And I pray that that would, that would make for fruitful ministry. So thank you, Lord, for this time together. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.